Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. There are great values in the heartland, although it's being discovered by big out-of-town money. Darren Garman, owner of Heartland Real Estate Companies, has been investing in apartment buildings in Iowa over the past 15 years and has done very well. He believes in low leverage and low risk. Darren borrows at 60% loan to value and is underwriting expenses to grow at two to three times more than income growth as a result of high inflation of labor and material costs. So today we have with us a man who uh, is, this is his second time on Street Smart Success. And the reason he's here a second time is because the interview the first time was so amazing. And so this guy is, uh, he is not a newbie. This guy knows what he's doing, which is an understatement, puts out a lot of incredibly valuable content. He is in the heartland. He is the owner of Heartland Real Estate companies. And this is Darren Garman. Darren, welcome back to Street Smart Success. Thank you for having me back. Glad to be back. Glad to be talking to you again and, and looking forward to looking forward to having uh, having another conversation with you. I admire you, which, which sounds so like sycophantic. It, it's not, <laughs> it's not, a, but I, I admire you because you put out, I get your content, man. And uh, I just love it. You're entertaining and you're outspoken, but coming from a place of knowledge. So it's not outspokenness for the for the sake of outspokenness. It's outspokenness from obviously a lot of like, you know, hard earned experience. And so, uh, you know, you put a lot of value and uh, you have a different perspective. And so, you know, look, man, we spoke a year ago and I'm just curious to know, you know, how would you characterize the market today compared to a year ago? Well, first, thanks for the thanks for the compliment. The comments appreciated, and uh, and appreciate that feedback, especially from a guy like you. So, so thank you very much. Uh, I would say the market is, if I had it, if I had to sum it up in one word, the the word would be scared, scared. That's how the market is, and of course, I'm referring to to the real estate market. I'm mainly thinking of, in my mind, I'm mainly thinking of multifamily properties. And, you know, the way that the market is now in multifamily, and probably a lot of listeners probably know what I'm going to say, but I'll, I'll just, just, to, just to give a little perspective to this. So we all pretty much know that the single family home right now, at least is still rolling along with overbidding, overpaying, in tens of thousands, even some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars for some single family homes. So we, we pretty much know that. And what I think what many people may not know is it's the same thing in multifamily too. Same thing's going on. And so if I were to put, let's say my real estate broker's hat on today, Roger. So if I was to put my hat on today and you called me and you said, hey, Darren, I've got a four unit property I want you to sell for me. Uh, and I've got a 400 unit property I want you to sell for me. I could sell the 400 unit property faster than the four unit property. And at multiples that would surprise even you, Roger, as an owner who's looking to get as much as you can from selling your property, obviously, you would even be surprised at the multiples and the price points that you'd be able to get in today's market right now. So, so that's why I say it's scary. It's scary. In terms of 
if you're looking to buy something, it's scary because properties are, it's hard to have them make sense financially, but it's scary in my eyes from a sustainability standpoint in terms of how much further can this go? How much more can be paid for properties when and if they start making, excuse me, stop making financial sense? That's, that's where I'm coming from, scary. Not scary in terms of, you know, real estate's bad or not scary in terms of, you know, residents aren't paying rent, nothing like that. But just in terms of the supply and demand, it's it's definitely scary. You know what? Uh, I've watched a lot of your stuff. I interviewed you, but I'm sitting here embarrassingly and I'm going to, I might, I might make a fool out of myself here. Are you in Cedar? I know you're in Iowa. Are you in Cedar Rapids? Yeah. Yeah. I'm in, I'm in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And, and for, you know, for the listeners, that's basically a marketplace of a couple hundred thousand uh, in East Central Iowa, just to give people, a, you know, kind of an idea and a kind of a flavor. Okay. So when you talk about like a 400 unit deal, you know, and, and the, the ferocity around people trying to acquire those, where are you talking about? Are you talking about in and around Cedar Rapids or a hundred mile radius? Or what does that mean? I'm talking about everywhere everywhere. So I'm talking pretty much from coast to coast, um, from north to south. And of course, I've got more connection in terms of my knowledge with that, Roger, with what I'm seeing being, you know, nose nose to nose and toes to toes with that in Iowa. Okay. Um, But also with the relationships and the um, and the people that I have really tight connections with that also own and are doing pretty much the same things that I'm doing and in the marketplaces where they are located, which is you know pretty much in, in most places around the U.S. You know they, they would probably tell you they probably tell you the same thing as an operator. Where do you operate in? Obviously, Cedar Rapids, but what what would be a radius? Because you're a. My understanding is you're you're not doing stuff in you know you're not doing stuff in Florida. You're not doing stuff in Georgia. You're doing stuff in Iowa. Correct? Yeah, that's correct. Most of what we own and what we work on in terms of wanting to own uh, is in the eastern half of the state of Iowa. Okay, so in the eastern half of the state of Iowa and comparing it to a year ago, and you're saying, you know, if it's 400 units, and I know you threw that out as a random, it didn't mean literally, uh, it's just scary how many people are bidding and how quickly that, you know, that gets sold, et cetera. So I guess the question is, is it that much more out of state institutional money coming into Eastern Iowa compared to a year ago or two years ago? Has it changed that much in the last 12 months? Yeah, great question. And and the answer is yes. Yes, and with everything that you just said. So the properties, so you think about so think about this. How many, how many real estate, we'll just say experts, people that should know what they're doing, how many of those folks sit around and think, you know, where's the greatest place we should be looking to buy multifamily? I can guarantee you Iowa's not on the top of the list. Okay. <laughs> And so why do I say that? Number one, it's true, okay? But number two is it's because if now we've got these folks that, let's say a year ago, would never consider the state of Iowa, now are coming into the state of Iowa and they're seeing the ability to purchase, let's say a 400 unit property, I'm just gonna be general too, but a 400 unit property for $75,000 a door, 
versus they just got done six months ago purchasing something and I'm just going to come up with a market. Nashville, Tennessee, for 175000 a door, they think this is like discount heaven. They think this is the place to be. And the telling part of that is most of, over the last year, Roger, most of the large multifamily properties that have sold for multiples that even surprised me have all been so, I shouldn't say all, that's probably not correct. Let's say 90%. 90% have been sold to companies, investment partnerships, syndications, et cetera, located out of the state of Iowa, not in the state of Iowa. Okay. So here's what that tells you. Number one, that answers your question, your, your, your question of yes, that's where the money is coming from uh, for the most part in, um, in grabbing the properties here in, in, in the Midwest, in the heartland. Number two, it also tells you that the owners and operators, asset managers, and people like me within, within the state, pretty much, we pretty much know what we need to know in terms of what, how much we should be paying for properties in order to have them be a benefit for us for years down the road. So if we're not buying these and they're pretty much located next door, so to speak, that kind of tells you something too about the pricing and where the pricing is and what's selling and where the demand is coming from. Out of all that money, is there, is it institutional? So in other words, you know, I, you know, what I, here is that you know institutional their their funding is less expensive than it is to you know uh, a smaller operator and can they can they work on smaller margins also to satisfy they've got all this money they have to you know deploy and uh, their investors require less of a return is that dynamic coming into play or is it just they're overpaying and they're going to be in, in hot water if rents don't continue to go up uh, I think it's about so my experience, and this is, we have, we as a company, uh, over the last year, we have tried, we've placed letters of intent on about a dozen apartment communities in the state. Okay. And through that experience and, and, and working through that, the answer to your question is it's about 50-50, pretty much. So about 50% are, are, we, were, we were beat out by uh, institutional institutional money. The other 50% was being beat out by more smaller investors, be it you know, maybe smaller partnerships, smaller syndications. And by smaller, that by no means means that they're you know small, but just in terms of comparatively speaking with institutional investors. Boy, if I'm you, I'm, I'm a little bit irritated. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm grouchy about it. Sure, <laughs> sure. I'm grouchy about it. And and here, you know, the frustrating thing about it is, you know, not only the time, effort, energy, and work you put into that, especially when you're looking to continue and grow and expand as a company, as an entrepreneur, you know, as an entrepreneur, the entrepreneurial part of you is like, yeah, I want to continue to, I want to continue to grow. I want to get deals done. And when you keep coming up with, uh, with, with a lot of work and really not much to show for it, it can definitely be, um, it can definitely be frustrating. There's, there's, there's no doubt about it. Quite frankly, I mean, coming from my perspective, you know, viewing it from the out, your situation from the outside in, it, it just makes all the sense in the world, frankly, because people are like you said, it's like, well, do I want to pay one seventy five a door in Nashville? You know, there's fifty states. 
And, uh, you know, I, I've not studied this, the state of Iowa, but it strikes me is kind of a steady state, not declining. Again, I've not done the research, but I, I would surmise that there are a couple markets in Iowa, not only are not, uh, contracting, but actually growing. So to me, it just makes, you know, at 50,000 feet, it makes a hell of a lot of sense. So I guess it's 75 a door. And I know you, that's not necessarily exact, but in that ballpark, what class properties are you talking about? You're talking mainly B class. If you want to get A class, you're probably getting closer to 100, 120,000 a door. Is 75 loosely, is that a year ago or is that now at like 85 and continuing to go up or can you still buy it at 75 a door, decent B class property? Oh, great, great question. So now, now you're looking at now you're looking at let's just say seventy five today for a B class property, seventy five to eighty thousand dollars a door. A year ago, you'd be in the high fifties to low sixties. Man, it's yeah. easy easy to see the value, and and again, just my own personal bias is the wrong word, but maybe it's the right word. I have this grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. So I live in the Bay Area, Northern California, where people for the most part are absolutely horrible and terrible human beings. So I am <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Ohio originally. And okay. and, and so uh, you know, which people confuse people out here, they don't know the difference between Ohio and Iowa. They get them confused by the way. Um, yep. but um in my mind you know, I'm thinking the tenant base is probably pretty good. You know, you know, I'm not naive enough to think that there aren't some, you know, D and C class areas in certain parts of certain cities of Iowa. I understand that, but, but generally speaking, the tenant base is probably pretty decent to manage. You know, certainly in B properties and 75 a door. I mean, it sounds like, uh, frankly, a, an incredible value. And so, what are you talking about in terms of rents for that kind of property? Yeah, so that's where the rubber meets the road, Roger, is the rents and the rent levels that are able to be sustained in Iowa. At first, uh, it sounds like that seventy-five dollars to $80,000 a door sounds like a pretty good deal just in general overall. But when you look at the rents that are able to be obtained in the markets in Iowa, uh, and let's just say in markets where you'd want to own multifamily in Iowa, okay? So you, whatever markets you identify, the ability to get those rents in order for the property now after you know ex- in- increases in expenses and inflation and you throw all those things together um, <clears throat> the numbers don't turn out nearly as good as what you would originally think they would based on that price per unit that you and I are talking about. And and at the end of the day, that's what it really comes down to is how much rent are we able to get um, and able to obtain a consistent occupancy and able to obtain, you know, with, with, with as low turnover as we possibly can while is steadily increasing rents, you know, that fine line there, where those rents need to be. And so if you would dive in and then do research on that, you'd be very surprised at the amount of rents that you're able to get because they're so low. I'm talking comparatively speaking to other markets, of course, larger markets. So at the end of the day, you know, even though that dollars $80,000 a door sounds like, you know, holy shit, that, uh, how, how many can, of those can I get and how quickly can I get them? 
once the numbers, you, you know, you get to the bottom line after going through that analysis, it's, it's not as, it, it's not nearly as good as what you think it would be. Yeah. I hate reality. Is, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are we talking like, you know, 700, 800 bucks for a two bedroom. Yep. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That, 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 that makes sense. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and, therefore, can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305 467 5909. You'll be glad you did. What are the markets you buy in mostly? So when I'm, and this is coming from a guy with experience in in a state with, with a low population. So uh, this is going to be a long answer, but I think it, it'll, it, I think it'll do a good job of illustrating where I'm coming from. So I think the population of Iowa is around two and a half million, something like that for the whole state. Okay. And so there are about six or seven cities in the state of Iowa that have enough economic activity going on that doesn't include agriculture, okay, that's not just relying on agriculture, to where you would want to, or I put it this way, would feel comfortable owning multifamily in, okay? And so without making this sound too oversimplistic, everywhere else in the state of Iowa, You've got such a small population, such a small economic base. Sure, you can own multifamily there, but the gains, the values, the income increases, it just comes so much harder and slower in those areas just because they're small and they just don't have that economic activity going on. And so for me, it comes down to about six or seven cities in the state of Iowa. Um, you know, there'd be cities like, of course, Cedar Rapids, obviously, Des Moines, Waterloo, Cedar Falls. Sioux City, Council Bluffs, which is right next to Omaha, Dubuque, which is up in the um, northeast corner of the state. And right there, I've pretty much named the places that if you were to hold a gun to my head and say, name the top six places, only six places you know in real estate in Iowa, those would be it. There's a, uh, I was involved in a, well, I am involved in a syndication with a company out of um, Indianapolis and they just acquired something in Des Moines and you would know the suburb better than me, but I think Apple has a plant there, maybe Microsoft. And uh, it's, it's like the average income in the suburb is like 150 grand. Yep. And so is Des Moines gaining population? Yeah, it is. Des Moines is a great market. Des Moines yeah. is a great market. It really is. And you know, one of the things that makes me a little grouchy, Rogers, we've we've attempted to acquire some properties there, and and as as you already know, we we, we have we, we've come up empty over the last you know, over the last twelve and eighteen months. But great market to be in, and I've got uh, a lot more familiarity with that market too because my daughter lived there for a number of years, and so you know, being dad to go visit and spend time there and those kinds of things, you know, not only from a 
knowing what I know about Des Moines, which is in the center part of the state, and looking at it from the eastern side of the state, but I mean, actually, you know, being there and being involved with what goes on there. Is it hard for you, you know, like you're saying, being an entrepreneur, and I think it's a human tendency to want to acquire. It could even be, it doesn't have to be an apartment building, it could be anything. We're, we're I think, by nature, acquisitive. Is it hard to, to keep to maintain discipline from your perspective, who's been doing this so long and knowing that it it really should fit into a box. And now all of a sudden you have to step out of that box to get a deal. Is it hard to stay disciplined? Yeah, I can answer that by, by saying that um, I've said this a number of times over the last six months, at least, you know, most days, I don't know if I'm a genius or an idiot. I don't know. And that has that relates to, you know, the, the way that that we that I have looked at purchasing properties and I, I don't know whether you call it a formula or process or underwriting, there's a whole bunch of different words for it. But at the end of the day, you know, I've I've got a process and a system that's been that's been pretty darn successful in making our acquisitions turn out to be to be super. And so in light of the market today, let's just say over the last year and a half to two years up to today, um, I have had some flexibility with that. So that box has stretched a little bit. Um, I've been willing to stretch. I've been willing to be more flexible than I usually have been. No question about it. And just as a side note, just as a side note to this, if I have a community that comes up for sale that's literally right next door to something else I own, I'm probably ready, willing, and able to overpay for it, to own it just because it gives me so many more things. And by next door, I mean like right next door. Okay. It just gives me so many economies of scale that I, I can't get. So that, so on a side note, I'm willing to step out of my box a little bit for something like that. Okay, but ordinarily, ordinarily, I am stretching my box. Okay, but at the end of the day, even when my box is stretched, and then when I find out how much more properties are trading for, it's like, holy shit, I don't get it. I don't get it. So I'll give you like a quick 30 second example. All right. Your marketplace, Des Moines, that you were talking about, you're involved in a syndication. We are involved. We submitted a letter of intent on a property last week for $15 million. Now, at $15 million, Roger, I'm stretching. My box is stretching. Okay. My box is stretching. I'm being told it's going to trade for close to 20. Okay. Wow. Well, there's no way that I'm even going to be in the ballpark at that. So when I see that happening, I then, I then, my, and, my analysis of that basically is someone else is obviously seeing the value there for that price. I don't see how it's going to work at that price, uh, especially if there's a lot of financing involved. I don't get it, but it makes me then feel good about my process and how we're doing things because I wouldn't be going into that level on a property anyway, knowing what I know. So, How many units is that property? 127. Okay. A deal like that, how many people you think are swarming around and, and going to take a shot at it? Probably a 10 to a dozen. Okay. So it's not like it, 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 in a market like Des Moines, it's, I guess, is a common reference point. Are there 400 unit uh, buildings uh, to acquire? 
There are 400 unit buildings to acquire. Of course, it's a different story of whether they can be acquired, but, but yeah, yeah, there, there, there are. And, 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 and for something that's that of that size, how many people are swarming around deals like that? I know, like, for example, if you're in like Dallas, Fort Worth, it could be 30 people, you know, and initially bidding for that kind of a scope of a property. Yeah. Well, uh, so the last, the property we tried to acquire before the example I gave you was 300 units. So that's probably a pretty good, a pretty good comp for us to talk about. So that was 300 units. We, we were down, we were the last five, my company was the last five involved. There were initially 25, 26 or 27 letters of intent submitted on that. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, it gets down to five of us. And, and so just to get, so, and that was, and that, you know, that's about a 20 ish million dollar property. I see. Yeah. So it's creeping into the heartland is what's what's happening clearly in those six or seven markets of a certain population in the state. Uh, and this is a you know going to be a different answer for probably the different markets of properties. But but broadly speaking, what are occupancy levels and or are they high enough where you're starting to see new construction? Uh, occupancy levels are ninety two percent or higher. If everybody's doing the job and doing the job, doing the way they're supposed to be doing, managing it, you should be 92% or higher. Uh, the rent levels are not at a point where you're going to see a lot of new construction because the, the rents still haven't caught up with what those construction costs are. However, you, that's not to say you won't see any new construction. You will, but attached to that new construction are uh, grants from cities and states, subsidies from cities and state, you know, from the cities or the state. And, you know, the, mainly the attachment of those subsidies uh, to make it uh, more economically feasible to construct really have to do with either one of two things. Number one is a certain percentage of your units need to be rented to people that have a certain income or, or less. Okay, so a certain percentage has to be with what would be termed affordable housing. All right, so we'll give you this grant, we'll give you this loan, we'll, we'll, we'll make it more economically feasible for you, but a certain percentage needs to be rented to people, folks that earn under a certain, a certain income, uh, income limit. The other part of it is if enough uh, improvements over and above just living units are done, there's some tax increment financing that can be obtained too. So at the end of the day, if you put more bells and whistles in your new construction, other than just building 800 square foot, two bedroom units, and that's it, uh, we'll go ahead and we'll, uh, we'll graduate your property tax bill. So in other words, maybe the first 10 years you're paying roughly 50% of the assessed valuation of the property and property taxes versus 100%. Uh, but then after that, then all, you know, the game changes and now it's back to normal. So you'll see some of those, uh, some of those games being played. But at the end of the day, there, there's really hardly any retail, let's see, Roger, you and I go build 400 apartment units in Cedar Rapids or Des Moines and let's just get going on it now, just because those rents are still not at a level where it makes sense because of the cost of construction. Very interesting. 
In terms of what you're underwriting on deals, what are you forecasting for percent rent increase versus percent expense increase? Expense increase are about double or triple what the rent increases are. And I think it has to be that way, not only in terms of where we're at right now in the economy, but it's going to get worse. I mean, your taxes aren't going to get any lower. Insurance isn't going to get any lower. Utilities aren't. And you sure as hell no labor is not going to go any lower. And so when I'm doing my underwriting, I'm placing much more much more budgetary attention to the expense side of things versus the income side of things. Uh, on the income side of things, I'm pretty conservative. So I'm in the I'm in this five to eight percent range in terms of where I think the rents can go. And that's just in general. So it's different if we're taking over a property, obviously if and I'm exaggerating, but if the if the former owner hadn't raised rents in three years, you know, the rents are going up more than five percent. You know, so uh, so there's that. But that aside, I mean, I'm in that seven. I'm in that seven to eight percent range. There's a lot of my cohorts that are doing 10, 15 percent, 20 percent. And my um, my my reaction to that is terrific. If, if the market can bear that, and if that's what the market can do, then you may as well be looking to do that if that's what the market will bear. However, however. You better be damn ready to start explaining yourself as to why you're able to do that, especially if you're located in a state that has, let's just say, more of a, and this isn't a political statement, but has more of a liberal political climate about housing than other states. I told a group of guys that I had a meeting with in January, I said, if you guys keep thinking you're going to raise rent 15 to 20% every year and not have any blowback, especially uh, politically, where what markets you're at, you gotta, you, you're mistaken. And it, it, it's funny because one of the guys I was talking to is in the Tampa area. And I know right now, what are they talking about in Tampa? They're talking about rent control right now in Tampa. And so you got to kind of be careful with this. Yeah, you want to take what the market will give you, but you got to be careful not to be coming out guns blazing, especially if you are a larger or not a well-known company coming from another state into a state. And this is what you're going to be doing. You better not, not, I, I'm not in any way saying you shouldn't do it. I'm saying you better be, have another plan in place to deal with some of the repercussions that you could be seeing there. I told you a lot more than you wanted to know there, but. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's all good. So when you say seven to 8%, uh, Darren, are, so you're talking year one, like you said, if the, if the rents haven't been raised for, for three years, I think that's a fairly, A, it's probably a fairly safe assumption and B, it sounds pretty fair. Are you talking about a five to 8% over a five-year period of time or, do, or are you just talking year one? And then I'm talking annually. So I'm, I, I like to be in that seven to eight, nine percent annually. And look, if the market is telling me, and so I'll, this is going to be a little oversimplistic. So if, if in January, I'll use a calendar year of January, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what we did. So we just raised all of our rents pretty much across the board, effective, actually it's going to be effective in April, um, between seven and eight percent. Okay, so pretty much across the board, that's on average where our rents are going. All right. Well, I'm going to be revisiting this again in September, October. And if once again, I'm seeing that 
and not that I'm ignoring it until then, but if, if the information when I'm really spending time revisiting this in September, October is telling me, you know, we think there's some room for some more increases there, then we're going to look at doing more increases. Um, so I, I do remain fluid with it. And, you know, it's not a case where we raise rent in April and then we close everything. We put all the files in the drawer and don't get the files back out until April the next year. So, I mean, I remain fairly fluid with it, but I do in the back of my mind want to remain somewhat conservative in terms of uh, where I think we can go and what the market could bear, not only in terms of affordability, which I already talked about, but, you know, the other things you got to be thinking of are turnover costs um, as a result of that. And um, especially at certain times of the year in some markets, uh, you know, a, a unit that gets turned over could sit empty for a longer period of time. Uh, so Iowa has really cold, cold winters. Uh, and you're an Ohio guy, so I know you know about cold, cold winters. So not many people in February are looking to rent an apartment in Iowa, you know. So uh, so if you factor some of those things in, too, even though we may be able to uh, look at a rent raise in, let's say, October, November. We may hold off until the next, you know, the early part of the next year. Uh, but I do remain fluid with it. I do remain, you know, plugged in in terms of what I think we can do. But I guess what I'm trying to say is not only is the flexibility there for me, but I also want to make sure that we are not simply biting off more in rent raises that we think we can get away with just because we think we can get away with it. Right. Do you have a, an orientation towards a class? Are you doing mostly B? Will you do C? Will you do A? I would do them all. And most of what we own now is B. And we do have some C. Uh, we do not, as of right now, have any what I would call class A. Would I do class A? Yeah. And Every single one of those classes in terms of is it something that we would look at, even C really for me comes down to, again, sounding a little oversimplistic and, and real estate 101 is location, you know. And so um, over the years, we have owned properties that we've taken over that uh, management condition wise, let's just say tenant mix wise, it's been definitely a C property in some cases worse. But, you know, the location has been actually pretty good. And if the location lends itself to the ability to pump time, effort, energy and dollars into the property and get it to a realistic, uh, a realistic value, it makes sense at the end of the day. Well, yeah, we'll do those all day long. But uh, a couple of the biggest mistakes I've made in this business has been going into a C property in a C area or worse and thinking because I'm so damn smart and so good at what I do, I can make this into a B property. And if there's one thing I learned, you can't change no matter how much money you pump into a property, Roger, it's you can't change the location, brother. And even saying it, it sounds like, God, that's so elementary. But, you know, I've had a couple of times where I didn't think through that process and I, I, I fucking paid for it. I can tell you that. Well, and, and now people were paying crazy amounts for class C. And so it makes the equation even that much more difficult. So what, what would you say your best business decisions have been? Man, that's a good question. Best business decisions. Um, well, so the number one best business decision. So I, I'm going to go real elementary and I'm going to add like two or three to this. Okay. 
Number one was uh, deciding to eventually focus on owning multifamily versus just selling multifamily. So I spent the first 15 years in, let's say, the multifamily business, Roger, as a sales guy, sales real estate broker. So I've sold billions worth of apartment communities around eastern central Iowa and, and made a good living at that. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with just being a sales guy, but I was just a sales guy. So finally seeing the benefits that you know all of my clients were getting, finally, it's like, okay, you should probably own some of this stuff too. And and so, you know, between 15, 20 years ago, you know, for finally starting to pick up some properties and start owning them. So that that's the best business. That's like the number one, because that's the foundation for, you know, for everything else. So so that'd be number one. Uh, number two, the, the, the second best decision that I made was uh, focusing our multifamily purchases on number of units, not number of addresses. Okay. Number of units, not number of addresses. And so at the end of the day, what I found out uh, is that I'd rather own, uh, let's just say 500 apartment units in four different communities versus 500 apartment units comprised of eight 12 unit buildings over here, nine eight unit buildings over there, 25 single family homes over here and having the same number of units, but you've got so many addresses with those units. Uh, the, you know, the best decision I've, I've made is combining everything that we own into as many units as we can with one address versus being spread out all over the place, having hundreds of addresses. What, what would you say is, uh, if you can extrapolate an average number of units per building that you do now? Uh, 72. Oh, okay. Got it. And yeah. then you, you, are you, you integrate, you're integrated, correct? Vertically, vertically integrated? Yes. Yes. Yes, we are vertically integrated. And then uh, what are you doing finance-wise? Have you done any bridge or you stay away from that? So uh, my answer is going to be, I'm going to sound like your old uncle from Iowa when I answer your question. Okay. And so I don't do any bridge financing at all. I won't touch it. Uh, what I do is, and not on every project, but on most. So here, here's the uncle from Iowa answer, Roger. Here it comes. No more than a 60% loan to value, 40% uh -huh. equity. And, uh, and, and I do not do any kind of, in, any kind of Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac financing. It's all commercial banks. Uh, and of course, I've built relationships with half a dozen of them over the years where you know, they're pretty much ready to go at a moment's notice. No personal guarantees, no car, no, none of that kind of stuff. Uh, not surprisingly, with a low loan to value like that. But that's what has worked really, really well for me over the years is, is that kind of financing. And yeah, I know it hurts return with, you know, when you're, when you've got that much, you know, when you don't leverage as much. And, and I know all of those things. Uh, and again, the uncle from Iowa would rather have a little less debt service, a little more equity available in the event the shit would hit the fan if it does than being fully leveraged out and wondering what the hell we're going to do if things don't work out the way that we hope they work out. I don't see uh, uh, I don't see a 
a, a great argument to that. Why not uh, agency debt? I have found we've I've only now this we, we've only done two agency debt deals over the years, only two. And I have found that, in my opinion, the cost of the financing and being boxed in with the financing once you've got it, especially with prepayment penalties and especially with flexibility once that financing is locked in. I have found at least the two agency financings, and both of those were refinances, by the way, not purchases. I found it to be a tremendous pain in the ass compared to dealing with uh, my local commercial banks where I don't have to worry about onerous prepayment penalties. I can walk in and I can work something out if I wanted to get a line of credit on the property, for example, for a reason. I can I can get it done within seven to 10 days. I don't have to go through five different committees and listen to somebody sit behind a, um, sit behind a desk in some other city trying to tell me there are eight reasons why. And you know, other, you know, the agency financing with being able to lock it in, great. Um, being able to get a low interest rate, great. But one thing you do lose once you do that is flexibility. You lose flexibility. And I like to have the flexibility and find that, you know, the agency financing the two properties that we still have Fannie Mae loans with, I, I consider it a pain in the ass in dealing with them anytime I want to do something. Interesting. Going back, this is a random question. Did the markets in Iowa, did they contract as much rents, values, et cetera, in 08? nine, you know, global financial crisis is markets in other other parts of the country or, or is it no. more stable? More stable. The biggest problem that I had in 08 and 09 was not, was not anything property related, nothing property related. It was lender related. We just couldn't find anybody to loan us any money, uh, either on a new purchase or refinance. And if they wanted, and if they actually hinted that they may have a interest and possibly maybe we might think about it loaning money. You know, the loan to values were 40, 50% and the debt service, I mean, you know, the, the terms were pretty, pretty reasonable on their side of the table. Uh, but in terms of property and how our properties were in 08 and 09, we didn't really have any problems. Interesting. Um, I guess I'm not hugely surprised, but I didn't know for sure. So here's the, the question I'll ask that this is my new favorite thing to do. And I, you know, well, I'm testing you. You're, you're going to be a guinea pig here. Here's, oh, good. The, here's a question. What is something that most people don't know about you? I would say something that most people probably don't know is that I, uh, I'm a former Iowa prison guard. <laughs> I knew that because we got it on the last uh, show, but oh. I, I, I get that. But, but that doesn't matter. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Is there a book that you've read that, that had an impact on you? Yeah, most definitely. I'll give you two if that's okay. Absolutely. Um, the first one will be one if you've asked, you know, it, when you ask this question, most will probably say think and grow rich in many cases. So that is one of them. And you know that's actually a book that I got out of the warden's office when I worked at the prison. I was in there for disciplinary reasons, by the way. So um, <laughs> I got out of the... I got out of the warden's office and I read, and that was really kind of the catalyst for me to finally decide to quit this job and get into the real estate business. So, so thank God for Napoleon Hill and Think and Grow Rich. So that's number one. Uh, number two, especially for real estate guys, it's a great book. 
It's old, uh, but it's one of my favorites. And one I recommend is Winning Through Intimidation by Ringer, Robert Ringer. Really, really good book. Now, one note I'll say about that book is he came out about 15, 20 years ago with like an updated version of that book by the name of To Be or Not To Be Intimidated. You don't want that book. You want the uh, Winning Through Intimidation book that was published in the 70s. That's the book you want. And for, for real estate guys, for entrepreneurs, it is the book you got to read. Wow. Well, yeah, the second book was he he decided he ran out of money that, that he made on the first book and tried to, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> got yeah. it. Well, yeah. listen, man, you have been fantastic. I, I've love this conversation with you. And um, I I hope we have a round three a year from now. And um, I love what you do and keep putting the content out, man. Thanks, Roger. It's always great talking with you, catching up with you and sharing with you, brother. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. I forgot to ask, how would one get a hold of you? Uh, Yeah, just go to my website is the best place to go to get info. And it's, it's real easy, but I'll spell it out because my name is the website, and sometimes it's easy to just misspell my name. So it's uh, www.darrengarman.com, and I'll spell that. That's D-A-R-I-N-G-A-R-M-A-N.com, darrengarman.com. Darren, have a great uh, rest of the week. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Roger. You too, buddy. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Yep, see you.